Well, I'm sure if you've been watching the news, um, one of the biggest storylines of the week has been a response given by one of the Democratic uh, candidates when he was asked uh, whether churches uh, should be penalized or removed to have their tax-exempt status removed for um, refusing to um, affirm the LGBTQ um, kind of uh, movement and, and uh, you know, transgender and gay marriage and all that. And the response was absolutely they should lose their tax-exempt status. So um, he made it very clear that um, if he were to be elected president, that churches that continue to affirm the biblical position um, on issues such as gender and, and marriage um, will be penalized. And uh, speaking quite honestly, a lot of churches probably wouldn't be able to survive, especially a lot of the smaller churches. Um, that being said, we know that God is sovereign. And we know that God can do all things. And uh, so God will will continue to make his name known no matter how hard the circumstances are, no matter how difficult the persecution becomes. And in fact, in many places, when persecution rises, you start to find out really who's willing to stand up for the true and unfiltered word of God and who is not. Um, But as we see those kinds of headlines today, it's a reminder to us that we have a tremendous privilege to be able to read and to be able to understand the unfiltered word of God. And that we can read it and seek to understand it the way that the Lord has intended us to understand it and not the way the world wants us to support their own unbiblical storylines. So that is a marvelous uh, blessing that we have each time we open up the word. And hopefully that's not something that we ever take for granted, um, especially here at this church. Now, I mentioned that earlier this week, my wife and I, we were at a conference. It was in Memphis, Tennessee. And it was for biblical counseling, and the theme was The Valley of the Shadow, and the subtitle was Suicide, Self-Harm, and Scripture. And of course, as we talk about suicide, much of the discussion also centered around depression, and uh, really depression as being a reality, not only for unbelievers, but even those who are in the faith. And this is going to be something that, as I was listening to it, I was convicted myself of the importance of us as a body of Christ, that that we need to recognize um, that you are never too spiritual to go through some of these difficult times in your life where you're going to be brought to despair before the Lord. We know it happened to some of the most godliest men of the Bible. It happened to Elijah. We know it happened to people like David. Um, Even Paul found himself despairing in various um, circumstances. So that is not new. It should not be new to us. And we remember that even Jesus Christ, when he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, his tears were like blood as he was asking the Lord, please remove this cup from me, not my will, but your will be done. So this is a reality that we need to be aware of. But what was interesting is I was listening to these presentations and listening to a lot of the wisdom and insight that was coming through from these pastors and, and fellow biblical counselors. It's this, that scripture is still fully sufficient even for those kinds of issues in our life. You know, it's not like the scriptures don't speak to these kinds of issues. They absolutely do. And the scriptures are fully sufficient, and that's, those are the times that we have to rely upon God's word. We have to lean upon the loving embrace of the Lord our God and trust in his sovereign purposes for whatever seasons in life he brings us through. So the scriptures are fully sufficient, but also what was telling was that those who ended up taking their own life, um, there were very um, identifiable commonalities uh, across people who took their life, and that's 
this, that in just about every single case, they were severely um, separated from the body of Christ. Um, They had isolated themselves. Um, They had um, removed themselves from fellowship, Um, either that or they didn't have a lot of people that knew them or could speak into their lives. And this is something that we as a church, we need to be aware of and we need to all the more um, really place an emphasis upon our fellowship with one another to make sure that while we are in the body of Christ, we are as adopted children, that we are treating each other just as we would treat our own brothers and sisters in a family. Because we indeed are brothers and sisters and we are actually brothers and sisters in a more important way than just physical, more important than just flesh and blood, but we are brothers and sisters in Christ, in the household of God, and in every spiritual sense. So it's so important for us. Now, another lesson that came across as I was listening to these messages was that for those of us that are going through difficult trials and and trying to counsel ourselves with the word of God, going to the great promises of God is a great start. Reminding ourselves of the blessings that we have in Christ is a great way to go. And sometimes, even in those darkest of times, when it doesn't seem like the Word of God is having an impact, we just have to trust in God's will as we rely upon His Word and His promises and remind ourselves that whatever problems that we have in this world is small compared to the bigness of our God. Amen? God is bigger than any problem we can ever face. But when we lose sight of God, when we lose track of the church, what happens is that our problems become bigger than God. We have a small God and the problem looks big when in reality we have a big God and those problems by comparison are quite small. But I was encouraged that one of the places that people, um, one counselor in particular said that he goes to is the book of Ephesians. Because Ephesians chapters 1 to 3, as we've been looking at this, we started from the very beginning in Ephesians chapter 1. And, and really, this is Paul just opening up his hearts and praising God for all the countless blessings that have come to us through the gospel. And he's gone at this from all kinds of different angles in various different ways. And as a reminder, when we think about Ephesians, going all the way back to chapter 1, chapter 1, verse 3, is when Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And he goes on from verse 3 all the way to verse 14, just counting off the blessings one after another, all the blessings that we have as a result of the gospel. And these are blessings that we don't often think about. These are blessings that we don't often understand. But the more you dwell on it, the more you understand it, the more you're going to look forward to our future eternity with God in heaven. And the more you look forward to our future, our eternal future with God in heaven, the more you're going to be able to endure the temporal struggles of today. The more you will be able to stand firm when tempted to compromise upon the word of God, as many churches already have in terms of the LGBT and the gender and all kinds of different movements. We have churches out there that are actually praying for Planned Parenthood centers, as if that's the will of God. And that is going to continue to happen. Churches will continue to capitulate to the culture. They will continue to give in to the pressures of society. But the more we know the word of God, the more convicted we are of it, the more hope we have driven through it, the more we are going to be able to stand firm and to be able to glorify God from here on earth up to God in heaven. And I think that's a worthy goal. Amen. 
So we want to be able to keep these things in mind. And then after we got past chapter 1, verse 14, from chapter from verse 15 all the way to the end of chapter 1, Paul lifts up this prayer. He prays that we would not only have greater knowledge, but that we would know amongst all things the hope of our calling, the riches of his inheritance in us as saints, and the power that is available to us, the same power that raised up Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand. And then we got into chapter 2, and Paul applied that power of God to remind you of what God has done in your life if you are a Christian. That just as chapter 2 starts, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, following after the course of this world, following after the prince of the power of the air, following after the desires and lusts of your mind and your flesh. And then verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. That is the power of God to be able to overcome our unbelieving hearts, to overcome our rebellion against God, to overcome the wisdom of this age that had completely moved us to follow after our own hearts and our own flesh. God was more powerful than that to be able to give us a new heart that we would be able to desire him. And the whole purpose of this in verse 10 is that we would walk in the works that God has prepared beforehand for us to walk in. Our works don't bring us salvation, but we are saved in order to do the good works that God has prepared for us. In other words, your good works are not the root of your salvation. It is the fruit of your salvation. It is not the cause. It is the outcome. So don't ever get lost in this idea of thinking that you have to be a certain level of holiness to be able to come to church or to be in fellowship. No, you're here so that you, along with the rest of us, can help to be sanctified more and more into the image of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And we are not perfect. None of us are. We all have our struggles. We all have our dark seasons. We all have times of difficulty where we feel like God is so far away from us when in reality God has never forsaken us or left us. And we need the body to be able to remind us of that. We need the body to understand what we're going through. We need the body to be able to pray for one another. Well, once we got past those first 10 verses, we get into the section that we're studying this morning. And we're on part two of our message. Let me go ahead and just read all of verses 11 through 22. But the focus for this morning's message is going to be from verses 14 through 18. Starting in verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. 
For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. That is a blessed section of Scripture, and it's one that it's easy to just kind of gloss over this. The main idea here is not hard to miss, but the details are difficult to grasp. They take some time to really think on them, to chew on them. But there's a reason why Paul shares all of these details with us. He wants us to study them and understand it, that we may be able to praise God. We may be able to be able to glorify God with a greater and richer understanding of what all Christ accomplished for us on the cross. And you see in your bulletin, we covered the first three verses, verses 11 through 13 last week, and that was our first point. And we're on to the second point, and the second point being Christ's work in reconciling us to God and one another. Christ's work in reconciling us to God and one another. And as we go through these verses from verses 14 through 18, I'm actually going to structure this by a series of five questions. Five questions that Paul answers as he goes through this. And let me just give you these five questions. I'll repeat them as we go through. But here are the five questions that are answered in these verses. What did Christ do to achieve peace? How did Christ achieve peace? Why or for what purpose did Christ seek to achieve peace? How is that peace applied to us? And what is the result of that peace? So those are the five kind of subpoints, the five questions that I'm going to lay out there that I believe Paul answers as we go through here. And as we take a look at verse 14, we take a look at verse 14, and it starts off with this statement, for he himself is our peace. Now, this is a little bit of an unusual statement because we're used to the idea of him bringing us peace, him giving us peace. But here it says he is our peace. And when it says he himself, this is in reference clearly to Jesus Christ, who is mentioned at the end of verse 13. He himself, meaning that this is no longer God the Father that we're talking about. This is Jesus Christ, the Son, who is our peace. And it reminds me of John um, 14, verse uh, 6. For I am the way and the truth and the life, right? I am the way and the truth and the life. And here, Paul is saying that he is also our peace. Now, as we look through the rest of this section from verses 14 through 18, it's really going to support that premise that Jesus Christ is our peace. So that brings up the first question, what did Christ do to establish peace? What did Christ do to establish peace? Now, before we read on, let's think about what the word peace means for just a moment. If you think about the greeting in Ephesians going all the way back to the beginning in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, Paul said, grace and peace be with you. It was a very common greeting. I talked about the word peace at that time. And peace really comes from the Hebrew word, and you would recognize this word, the word shalom. It's often how Jewish people greet one another. It's very common to hear while you're in Israel. And so this peace is much more than just an absence of warfare, which is what we typically think. We think that there's no battle going on, but peace was much broader than that. It encompassed a whole lot more than that. Technically, peace could refer to wholeness, well-being, 
prosperity, salvation, or just general harmony. And and notice in this passage that we see peace mentioned numerous times. We see it right there in verse 14, that he himself is our peace. We see it there again in verse 15, at the very end saying, thus establishing peace. In verse 17, it's mentioned twice that he came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who were near. So peace is obviously a very big part of this reconciliation. And peace had been prophesied from the Old Testament. You'll recognize this verse, Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, just listen to this. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace. And then verse 7 goes on to say there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. So we have those prophecies from the Old Testament. And then Isaiah 53, verse 5. Isaiah 53, verse 5. Just write that down. I'm going to read from the ESV on this one. But it reads, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. I read from the ESV because the NASB translates that well-being instead of peace, but it's the same word, shalom. And notice that Paul says that he himself is our peace. Now, up until this point, if you remember, Paul often distinguished between Jews and Gentiles. He he would identify the differences of, of experiences between the two groups. But in this case, when he says he is our peace, there is no doubt that he is talking about everyone. Because when you look at verses 11 through 13 again, 11 through 13, he's talking about both groups, how there was a separation between Jews and Gentiles. But then in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So at this point, when he says our peace, he's including everyone, both Jewish believers as well as Gentile believers as well. And so we bring up that first question. So what what did Christ do to establish peace? We know that he died on the cross and we know that his blood paid for our sins. We understand that. But there is so much more to the gospel than just the fact that he saved us. That is a very rudimentary understanding of the gospel. We want to be able to dive deeper and to be able to understand more. And as we continue in verse 14, it says that for he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Now, literally, when he says when the NASB says who made both groups into one, literally, it just says that Jesus made both one. So what is the both? The both is referring to the two groups, both Jews and Gentiles made them into one group. So that group of Jew and Gentile, circumcised and uncircumcised, had come together. Because if you remember last week, I took you through a number of Old Testament passages that showed the division that, uh, that was there between Jews and Gentiles. I mean, just going through the major Old Covenant promises, we could see the division. We could see that the major promises going back to the Abrahamic Covenant and then the Mosaic Covenant and the Davidic Covenant, they were given specifically to what people? To the Jews. Now, there were promises in there for Gentiles, but the promises were not given to Gentiles. They're given to the Jews. 
And so the Jews knew the promises. And that by the all end of the Old Testament, when they got to the end, and none of those three covenants had been fulfilled, they knew that God had promised to fulfill them sometime in the future. They knew a Messiah was coming. But only specifically the Jews and anyone who happened to be trained by Jews in these things would have known that. And so Gentiles were separated from all these promises. They were separated from the commonwealth of Israel. They didn't have the benefits that the nation of Israel had. But God always had a plan for them. And as we consider this verse, when he says he made both groups into one, let me read for you Galatians 3.28. 3.28, Paul writes, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And then Ephesians chapter 2, look, look earlier in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, we read, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So we recognize from that verse that all of us are saved the same way. It is by faith in Jesus Christ, whether you are a Jew or a Gentile. It does not matter. But as we read on, it says, and he not only made both groups into one, but he also broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. What is this barrier of the dividing wall? Well, we already read about the alienation. Remember from verses 11 through 13, we read in verses 11 to 13 that, that the Gentiles in the flesh who were called uncircumcision, that in verse 12, that they were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So we know that there was alienation between them and the Jews. And what's interesting is that the temple in Jerusalem at this time. Now, the Ephesians might not have been aware of this, but Paul most certainly would have been. If you were to go to the temple grounds in Jerusalem at this time, the first area that you walk in as you get onto the temple grounds is a place called the Court of the Gentiles. In fact, that's where the merchants were when Jesus was flipping over tables, you know, saying that you have made God's house into a robber's den. But then beyond that, you couldn't go any further. Only Jews could go further. I mean, if I could make an analogy, it'd be like Western Avenue Baptist Church. If this was a temple, really the building itself would be the temple, but maybe the parking lot would be like the court of the Gentiles. And they couldn't go any closer than the parking lot. You know, and then some can come into the foyer, but not everyone can come into the sanctuary. So there were these kind of boundaries within the temple that only certain people could go beyond. And there was this inscription on one of the walls. It was very interesting. It reads this. No foreigner is to enter. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his subsequent death. So even as a visual, if you were to go to the temple at this time and you were a Gentile, you would recognize that there was a certain point which you are not to cross. And the implication here is that if you cross it, God himself will strike you down. So in some ways, while God did not intend some of the negative attitudes that came out of the Jewish community towards Gentiles, you can see that this was also a very divinely constructed wall between the Jews and the Gentiles. Now, the Jews were supposed to act as a nation of priests. They were supposed to share God with Gentiles, but that really did not happen. 
Now, I mentioned that the Gentiles and Ephesians, they were likely unaware of this wall that had been in the temple. So some had said, well, they wouldn't have known about this wall, so that's not what Paul had meant. Well, they may not have been aware of that wall, but I believe that Paul very much in his mind would have known that wall. And it's one of those things that even if you don't see the wall, this still makes sense. But if you see the wall, it uh, brings a much deeper symbolic meaning there. But as we continue on, verse 15, we come to our second question. How did Christ achieve peace? How did Christ achieve peace? We talked about what Christ, what Christ did to achieve peace. Now we're looking at how did Christ achieve peace. And starting in verse 15, we read, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity. Now the question is with regards to the word abolishing. What does that mean? Well, we understand that that means to get rid of, but in the Greek sense, this is really to nullify. It is to make no longer binding. And one commentator said it is to render operative, inoperative, sorry, to render inoperative. And in this case, when he says he is abolishing in his flesh the enmity, beyond that, we see that the enmity is referring to the law, as we'll discuss in just a moment. But it says here that he abolished in his flesh the enmity. In his flesh is a symbolic reference to the cross. It's a symbolic reference to the death that he suffered on the cross, the price that he paid there. And in fact, in three different locations in this passage, I mean, if you go back to verse 13, we, we see that there's reference to the blood of Christ, that you're brought near by the blood of Christ. And then here we see that by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, and then later in verse 16, we see that through the cross, we see the phrase through the cross. So we have by his blood, through the cross, or, or in reference to his crucifixion, and here um, abolishing in his flesh. Basically, whether it's in his flesh, whether it's by his blood or through the cross, these are all symbolic references to the crucifixion. It's all symbolic references to the death that Jesus Christ paid on the cross. Paul is just using different terms as we go through to reference the same event. But this enmity, when we see the word enmity, what does enmity mean? Well, I looked it up in the Oxford Dictionary, and the Oxford Dictionary says, the state or feeling of being actively opposed or hostile to someone or something. And the concise dictionary says it's basically the state of being an enemy. So you can see the similarity in the word enmity and enemy. Enmity is basically the state of being someone's enemy. But when he says, when Paul says that Jesus Christ abolished in his flesh the enmity, what enmity is he talking about? What two parties were enemies of one another? Well, clearly in context, he was talking about Jews and Gentiles. Basically that there was, there was a certain attitude that went both ways between Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles, even God-fearers, people like, uh, like Cornelius, uh, while they were God-fearers, while they believed in God, they weren't willing to go to the lengths uh, necessary to become an official proselyte for the Jews. You know, for the Jewish people, if someone wanted to officially become um, a part of the nation of Israel, they had to become circumcised and go through all these steps um, that were obviously quite painful and quite costly. But when it talks about the enmity, we go on to read that this is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. The law of commandment contained in ordinances. Now, this is in reference to the Mosaic law. This is in reference to the Mosaic covenant. 
And it's more than just the Ten Commandments. We often think of the Ten Commandments that show up in Exodus chapter 20. But if you were to go through the five books of Moses, you would find over 600 commandments given by God to the nation of Israel as it related to this Mosaic Covenant. So it wasn't just the Ten Commandments. It was over 600 that they had to follow. That's a lot of commandments, right? Can you imagine each and every day having to remember 600 commandments to cover all aspects of your life? I mean, it was difficult, but God intentionally did it that way so people could see what it takes to be holy, what it takes to to even come close to to meeting the standard of God, though they're really not close because they always had to bring sacrifices to remind themselves of their own sinfulness. Now, what did Christ abolish? We go back to that question. What did he abolish or nullify? Well, let me read for you Matthew 5, 17 through 18, and this will give us some food for thought. Matthew 5, 17 through 18 reads this. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. So in that verse, Jesus is actually saying, I did not come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. And then in Hebrews 8:13, you can just write this down. Hebrews 8:13, we read, when he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. So which is it? Because in some verses we see that the old has passed away and is obsolete, and in other cases like the words of Jesus Christ, he says, "I didn't come to abolish, I came to fulfill." Well, it's actually both. You see, for Jesus Christ to bring the old covenant to an end, he had to perfectly fulfill it. He had to be the perfect sacrifice on the cross to be able to fulfill all of the demands made by the Mosaic law. And then for him to fulfill it, then he can bring a new covenant. He could bring a new covenant in which we are no longer expected to be perfect, which is what the righteousness of God demanded in the old covenant, but we are now saved by grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he's the one that fulfilled it. He's the one that did what we could not do. He paid the punishment that we should have paid in order to give us the salvation that we never deserved. So that is the blessing of God. So as we think about abolishing or fulfilling, it is both. But it depends on how you're looking at it and how you're understanding salvation to have occurred. Jesus Christ could not have brought the law to an end unless he had perfectly fulfilled it first. And then once he fulfilled it, then the requirements of the law, the all 600 plus commandments, they now fall to the ground. Now, that doesn't mean that we can just live our life however we want to live our life. It doesn't mean antinomianism. Antinomianism means lawlessness. It doesn't mean that we can resort to lawlessness. In fact, just if you look up at chapter 2, verse 10, chapter 2, verse 10, we are reminded, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. We are created for good works. We're not saved by good works. We're created for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And in addition, when you look back at the Old Testament promises, you can just write this down. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. That's when Moses looks forward to a time in which the Lord would circumcise the hearts of of Israel. And why would they have to have their hearts circumcised? So that they would obey God. Ezekiel chapter 36 talks about 
us receiving a new heart, a heart of flesh and a new spirit. Why would we need a new heart and a new spirit? In order to obey God. Jeremiah 31 verses 31 to 34 talk about the new covenant. And what is it that he mentions? He mentions the fact that this new covenant is not like the old. In this new covenant, God will write his law on your heart. Why? Because then you will obey it. So this doesn't mean that we resort to lawlessness. The whole point of salvation is that now, now that we have received a new heart, now that we know the Lord Jesus Christ, now that we have been recipients of his grace and mercy, that it's now going to be the motivation of our heart to glorify God by doing what he has asked us to do. And that's why when you get through the first three chapters of Ephesians, you get into chapter four, five, and six, it's no longer a list of things that you must do, like do this, do this, do this, do this. It's now just a logical outcome of your faith. It's just a logical outcome of the love and grace that God has poured into you, and now your desire to just simply please him. So this is what we mean by Jesus Christ had, had abolished um, the, the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. This law, though, though the law, we think of the law as condemning us before God, and that it does. We are condemned before God because of the Mosaic law. But in this case, he's talking about the enmity between Jews and Gentiles. You see, Jews had to live by this strict code of ethics and laws and, and guidelines, and the Gentiles didn't. And sometimes that led to some condescending attitudes from the Jews to the Gentiles. But Jesus abolished that enmity between those groups. And so we go from the question, how did Christ achieve peace, to the question, for what purposes did Christ seek to achieve peace? So this is the question, why? Why did he do it? For what purposes did Christ do this? And when we read on in verse 15, we see, so that, so that in himself, he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. The so that, when we see the word so that, that denotes purpose. And what we see here is actually not just one purpose, but we're going to see two purposes. The second purpose comes up in verse 16, which we'll get to in a moment. But here, this first purpose says, as so that in himself, he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. When it says in himself, once again, we're talking about Jesus Christ. And there's this union of Christ that we see being referenced over and over again when it says in him, in him, in Christ, in himself. But here it's saying in himself, he might make the two into one new man. So those who are in Christ, Jesus will create one new man out of two. And the word create here, it's the same word being used for creation. When this Greek word is used elsewhere, it's being referred, is referring to God as a creator, God who has created the heavens and the universe. So Jesus Christ is actually creating a new man out of these two groups. And what's amazing about this is that in the past, in the Old Testament times, if Gentiles really wanted to be a part of the nation of Israel, they had to go through all the steps needed to become an Israelite. But that's not what this is. This is not making a Gentile into a Jew. And this is not making a Jew into a Gentile. This is the creation of a whole new man that previously didn't exist. Whereas from the Jewish perspective, there had always been just two groups of people. Either you're a Jew or you're a Gentile. Right? I mean, it's that simple to them. You're either a Jew or a Gentile. But now in this new world, Paul is identifying a third group. You're Jew, Gentile, or you're in Christ. You're a new man. You're a brand new man in Christ. And that's all of us together. 
So we see that he creates this new man into this new man for those who are in Christ. They are neither Jew nor Gentile. And you contrast that with verse 11 earlier on when Paul talked about how the circumcision was really a circumcision of human hands, right? It was a circumcision of the flesh out of human hands. In this case now, this new man is one that is divinely created by Jesus Christ. It's divinely created by his death for those who confess him. And so there are no more divisions between Jew and Gentile. But what about us? Because for us, we look around and there's not really any Jewish believers here. So what does that mean for us? Well, think of it this way. You know, within the Jews, they didn't have perfect unity. I mean, if you just read through the gospel accounts and you read through the book of Acts, you'll see there was a lot of different groups of Jewish people. Amongst the leadership, there were Pharisees and Sadducees, and they didn't see eye to eye, right? You know, and then you had zealots who wanted to cause insurrection in the government. And then you get to the book of Acts, you know, when the deacons are first called, they're first called because of a complaint that was raised up from the Hellenized Jews, the the ones who were raised with Greek customs and cultures. You know, and then you had half Jews like the Samaritans, whom the full-blooded Jews would have nothing to do with. So there was all kinds of division amongst the Jews. And the Gentiles, it would have been the same way. We know that just looking around us, there's all kinds of division. You know, Paul would say things like no longer Scythian or barbarian, things like that. There were also people groups within the Gentiles. But the greatest division was between Jews and Gentiles because of the Mosaic law. And if that can be broken down between Jews and Gentiles, then there should be no other division that exists amongst us. We should be completely united. No matter what background you have, no matter what it is you were born or you were raised in, what city you came from, what what kind of cultural um, preferences uh, you, you were grown up with, all of us share one thing in common is that we were saved by the Lord Jesus Christ and we recognized our need for it. And that is something that unites us into one new man. And that is a greater, that is a greater similarity, that is a greater commonality that we can have with one another than anything else. You can have everything else in common, but if you take away a shared faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have nothing in common. If you have a shared faith in Jesus Christ, you have everything in common. The other differences do not matter. And when we're thinking about this new man, Jesus gave us this commandment. Just write this down, John chapter 13, verses 34 to 35. John chapter 13, verses 34 to 35, he writes, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this men, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That is the mark of being in Christ, that those who are in the world can look at us and see that we love and care for one another. You know, I know, you know, we have our ongoing prayer requests uh, week after week, and uh, those are certainly needed. Uh, we, we need to be praying for one another. We need to recognize who are, who, who's in physical need, who has, um, who's, who's struggling with health and all those kinds of things. And part of the prayer request, I know, is also for the church to have the right number of volunteers and all the ministries that we do. But also, I hear often people pray for the growth of this church, which is wonderful. We want the church to grow. But I can tell you this, that the greatest testimony that you can provide to people thinking about coming here is going to be your love for one another. That will speak louder than any other kind of testimony that you can provide. That you love one another 
you care for one another, you spend time with one another, you're praying for one another, and you see one another as even more important than yourselves. But as we continue on, that was the first purpose that Christ, for, that, that Christ uh, sought to achieve peace. There's a second purpose. It's not just to remove the enmity, the, the law and the commandments to, to help establish one new man. But when we get to verse 16, verse 16, we see this, and that he might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put into death the enmity. Now, it says here that he might reconcile them both. Well, what is reconciliation? Reconciliation, it implies that there is some sort of break in the relationship, that, that there is some sort of hostility, there is some sort of animosity between um, two people or two parties. And reconciliation is the idea of those two people or two parties coming back together and restoring their relationship. In fact, it's a very similar idea to atonement, though atonement was about covering for the sins, covering for the sins of, of Israel when they brought their sacrifices, that they would be brought back and reconciled to God when they confessed and, and atoned for those sins. You know, that's why they have a devoted day of atonement, Yom Kippur, specifically for that purpose, to be able to confess, to, to be able to bring sacrifices for all of their unconfessed sins through the year that they may be able to be fully reconciled to God. But it says here that he might reconcile them both in one body to God. In one body. When he talks about one body, he's not talking about the literal body of Christ. What do you think he's talking about? What is the body of Christ? It's the church. That he might reconcile them in one body. So Jews, Gentiles are brought into one body of Christ. They're not just simply reconciled, but they're reconciled within the body of Christ. But they're reconciled, in verse 16, it says, in one body to God. So while Paul first started talking about the reconciliation, the, the reconciliation that happened between groups, which was Jew and Gentile, now we see here is emphasized, emphasis upon reconciliation of both groups into one to God through the cross. Because if we're just reconciled to one another, but we're not reconciled to God, we still have serious problems. And this is what we sometimes call the horizontal and the vertical relationships. You know, the reconciliation that happened between people, between Jews and Gentiles, that was horizontal. When you guys ask for each other for forgiveness, when you ask for forgiveness or grant forgiveness, you're, you're providing a symbol of, of reconciliation that's horizontal between person to person. But what we needed first and foremost was that vertical reconciliation between us and God. The vertical rec reconciliation makes possible the horizontal reconciliation. So, but here, Jesus Christ, so he's saying that he not only uh, put to death the enmity that, that brought division between groups of people, but he also reconciled them both into one body to God through the cross. And when we see that reference through the cross, that is obviously the crucifixion account. And in Verse 16 finishes by reading, by it having put to death the enmity. So this is the second time enmity is being brought up. But see, the first time that enmity was brought up at the beginning of verse 15, that was talking about the enmity between Jews and Gentiles. This one, the enmity is between man and God. So Jesus Christ, when Paul says Jesus Christ is our peace, he is our peace in every way that we need it. Not just between peoples, but also between us and God. He put to death 
enmity in both vertical and horizontal directions. We are all one new man. We are all part of the body of Christ. We are all children of God. And it reminds us, remember, in the first three verses of chapter 2, that we were once dead in our trespasses and sins. We walked according to the prince of the power of the air. We walked according to the lust and, and desires of our flesh. We were indeed at enmity against God. But that was put to death as well. And then that brings us to the fourth question. How was peace applied to us? How was peace applied to us? In verse 17, we see a Old Testament quotation. And this comes from, from probably two different quotations in Isaiah. Uh, one is Isaiah 52, verse 7. You can just write this down, 52, verse 7. And the other one, Isaiah 57, verse 19. Let me read them each to you. Isaiah 52, 7 says, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, Your God reigns. And then Isaiah 57, 19, that reads, Creating the praise of the lips, peace, peace to him who is far and to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. So that's talking about the peace that we brought to both those who are close, as well as those who are far. Now, the question is, though, in verse 17, it says, He came and preached peace. When we think about the life of Christ, when did he come and preach peace? Because most of his earthly ministry was actually directly to Israel. He didn't really spend a whole lot of time with the Gentiles. There were a few instances, like the woman at the well. But for the most part, he really, his ministry was devoted to the Jewish people. Well, some have argued that Christ proclaimed, he preached um, this peace simply by dying on the cross, that the death on the cross itself was the proclamation of peace. But that's not, that, that's not an adequate explanation because the proclamation here, when it says he preached peace, the word for preached is the same Greek word used to evangelize. It's where we get the word evangelism. Euangelizo, it's where we get evangelism. The idea is that he spoke, he preached. There are others who claim that after Christ was resurrected, right, after Christ was resurrected, he spent 40 days with his disciples and he taught them all the ways that the Old Testament pointed to him. In fact, even before he was crucified, in John 14, 27, he said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives, do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. So there he was promising to give them peace. But probably the best way to understand this is really from the time that Jesus Christ was resurrected. Indeed, he did spend 40 days with the disciples teaching them how the Old Testament prophesied of him. But in addition, you may remember that John the Baptist, when Jesus Christ first came, John the Baptist said, I baptize with water, but there is coming one after me who's going to baptize with what? The Holy Spirit. He said Jesus Christ would baptize in the Holy Spirit. And do you know when that happened? That happened on the day of Pentecost after Jesus had already ascended up into heaven. The, the fact was Jesus Christ used his apostles to baptize with the Holy Spirit. And not only that, but it would be the apostles in the book of Acts because Jesus Christ asked them to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the rest of the world. So basically they were ambassadors of him. They went out and they proclaimed this message on his behalf. 
So this proclamation of peace, I would see as the early work of, you know, some of the teachings of Christ after he was resurrected, but really the work of the apostles and the prophets in laying the foundation of the church. In fact, right in verse 20, Ephesians 2.20, you'll see having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, this is talking about the church has been built on the foundation of apostles and prophets. And in this reference uh, that Peace was preached to those who are far away and to those who are near. In context here, Paul is talking about the fact that Jews who were near had peace preached to them, but also Gentiles who were far away had the same peace preached to them. The same message that saved the Jew is the same message that saved the Gentile. And it was through the proclamation of the gospel that this happened. And you may notice that a lot of the Old Testament references I've been reading from came from the book of Isaiah. But even the book of Isaiah had prophesied that all the nations would eventually come to the Lord. You can just write this down, Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Isaiah 2, 1 through 4. I won't read it, but in that vision, Isaiah sees all the nations coming to the Lord. But this is all made possible by the proclamation of the gospel. And so it's a reminder to us that as we live out in the world, when we are surrounded by non-believers, we have people that don't know Christ that we too are ambassadors of Christ, that we too should be sharing that good news. And then we move to the final question. What is the result of that peace? What is the result of that peace? We see this in verse 18 as we read, For through him, through him being Christ, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. We both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Now, notice, first of all, that right in this verse, we have the full Trinity involved. In Christ, we have access to the Father through one spirit. All the Trinity is involved in your salvation and your sanctification. And it's not only the fact that we have access, but we continually have access. You see, when Paul previously has said that we were cut off from the commonwealth of Israel, that that we were strangers to the covenants, that we were alienated from these things. Now, what Paul is saying here is that all of us together, because he says we both, he's saying both Jew and Gentile together, we have access to God through one spirit. And even for the Jews, this would have been a brand new blessing that they hadn't previously experienced because... When they went to the temple, the holiest of holies, the the holiest of holies was occupied by the glory of God. In the middle of the temple, you had this uh, this curtain that that surrounded um, a small area of the temple, and the glory of God would fill it up, and only one person could go in there, and that was the high priest. And he could only go there once a year, and he had to go there having made the right preparations, bringing the right sacrifices, or else he would be killed. He was the only one that had direct access to God, and only on a limited time basis for that one time of the year. But now all of us, we have access to Father through Christ in the Spirit. That is a reminder to us that when we pray, well, first of all, we should be praying. When we go through difficulties, every day when we're considering our lives, when we're considering our role in in God's plan, when we're considering God's will, when we're considering all the things that we're going through, we need to be going to God constantly in prayer because we have a privilege that even the Israelites of the Old Testament did not have. 
We can go to God anytime in prayer. But here, when Paul emphasizes that we both have our access, this once again is affirming the unity, the unity of the body of Christ. And when Paul mentions one spirit, there's a couple of other places at least that he mentions one spirit. Turn to chapter 4, look at verses 4 through 6. Chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, Paul writes this, There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Paul there is emphasizing our unity, our commonality. So when he says one spirit, it's once again reminding us that we are all one with one another. And even 1 Corinthians 12, you can just write this down. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4, Paul says there are a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. In other words, the idea is that we're all in one spirit, so we are all being moved to do the will of God. There should not be, there should not be arguments or contradictions between us. If we're obeying, we obeying God, if we're, if we're being led by the Spirit, if we're being informed by His Word, if we're seeking to please God, there should be perfect unity amongst us. Now, I know that's not always the case. In fact, I know that's rarely the case because on this this side of heaven, we still are in a sinful world. Amen. We still see the result of fallen flesh, even in our own bodies. But this is why we have the blessings of being able to ask for forgiveness, being able to reconcile with one another. And I'll just uh, close with this. Um, turn to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. the fourth gospel, the fourth book of the New Testament. Turn to John chapter 17. We're going to take a look at verses 20 to 23. I'll go ahead and read this. John chapter 17, verses 20 to 23. This is Jesus Christ, his high priestly prayer. And uh, from verses 20 to 23, he's praying for us. And just follow along, starting in verse 20. Jesus says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. And then go to verse 22, the glory which you have given me and I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. We see in Jesus' prayer for us prior to his arrest and crucifixion that what he prayed for us was for us to be united. Now the question I will leave you with is whether you have this peace. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you certainly have peace with God and with God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. And certainly he has made you one new man in the church. But look around and consider the relationships that you have within the church. Are there any relationships that need to be reconciled? Is there any disagreements that need to be discussed? Is there any sins that need to be confessed to one another? And if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ... This is my opportunity to tell you that you will never know peace unless you come to Jesus. 
You will never know peace unless you understand that you are in enmity. You are enemies of God. You are in rebellion against him no matter how good you think you are. In fact, the more good that you think you are, the more of an enemy of God you have become. You need to recognize that your works can never save you. Your works can never pay the, the, the price of all the sins that you have committed. Only a perfect man, Jesus Christ, on the cross could have paid for your sins for all of eternity. And so what's required of you is to be able to confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. To repent of your sins, to turn away from the ways in which you've been rebelling against God, and to commit to following Jesus Christ. And if that describes you, make sure you don't leave today without talking to one of us. Um, I'm sick, so you may want to not want to talk to me. But uh, we do have some uh, deacons in the audience. Deacons, would you stand up? Deacons and, and your wives also. Sorry, Deacons and uh, your wives. Yeah, so look around. We have um, a lot of wonderful resources. Thank you. You can be seated. A lot of wonderful resources. If you have any questions, if you want to know more about the gospel, about Jesus Christ, how you can be saved, talk to one of them. They will talk to you. They will pray with you, and they will help set you in the right direction. And for the rest of us, just give praise to God for the marvelous work that Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. The more we go through Ephesians, the richer this gets. And the more we recognize how Jesus Christ didn't simply just save us for ourselves, but he saved us that we may be reconciled together to God. And may we glorify God in that reality. May we continue to love one another and excel still more as we seek to glorify God through our horizontal relationships as well as our vertical relationship with God. Let me close in prayer.